we see you, Tamika. And you promised that if we looked for you, we'd find ourselves. But you also warned us to keep looking, to keep pushing the media to higher ground, to break its embargo on marginalized stories of missing women of color. So onward, Tamika, and congratulations to everyone being honored here tonight. May we all continue to glow in the dark. Thank you very much. That was Erica Alexander accepting her silver baton at the DuPont Awards ceremony back in February for her podcast series, Finding Tamika. This month, we are speaking to Erica about her series and the disparity in news coverage for missing women of color and her unusual path to podcasting. Welcome to On Assignment from Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of Professional Prizes, joined in the radio booth by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So we're back, and we are discussing this 2023 DuPont winning work as we open for the 2024 award submission period. That's right. Between May 1st and July 1st, we're accepting submissions. So we encourage you all to put your best work out there. Abby, why don't you tell us about this Silver Baton winning podcast series by Erica Alexander. Right. It was Erica's very first win, and it was a first for her producers, Kevin Hart and Charlemagne the God. And if you're not familiar with Charlemagne, he hosts a wildly popular radio talk show called The Breakfast Club. And you might know Erica Alexander for her other career as an actress, but she's also a writer, producer, and now narrative podcaster. You probably know her from the 90s classic sitcom Living Single, also starring Queen Latifah, or from Jordan Peele's Get Out. Yeah, she has certainly taken an interesting path to podcasting, writing and producing Finding Tamika. That's right. So in Finding Tamika, Erica and her producing partner, Ben Arnon, followed the life and death of Tamika Houston, a young woman who went missing in 2004. Tamika's aunt, Rebecca Howard, did a lot of work back then to bring her case to the attention of the news media. And in fact, she became a flashpoint to highlight the lack of coverage in the news when black girls go missing. The way that Erica covered this story is unusual, certainly for DuPont. Coming from a background in the arts, she has a talent for really rich description, and I would call it lyrical exposition. You're going to hear how it was really important to Erica to understand who Tamika Houston was when she was alive, and not just as a crime statistic, and to think about the way the media represents the lives of black girls and women. And she really urges veteran journalists to do the same. Yeah, her acceptance speech was so powerful. But back at the time of this conversation, Erica didn't even know she had won the DuPont when you spoke to her. At that time, she was a finalist. Yeah, you're actually going to get to hear her find out about her win and that she would take home the very first silver baton for Audible. To say that she was surprised was a bit of an understatement. She was surprised and she was very moved. So let's get to it. Here is an edited version of your conversation, Lisa, with Erica Alexander. So good to have you here. 
thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you could help people who are not familiar with the work and just give us a thumbnail sketch of what Finding Tamika is. Finding Tamika is a neo-noir true crime 10 part audible series. It's about the life and times of Tamika Houston. Tamika Houston was a young woman. She was 24 years old, black woman from Spartanburg. She went missing in 2004. And what makes her case unique is that she became the rally and cry for other missing black women in America, and also to address what Gwen Ifill, the great journalist, called missing white woman syndrome. And she was the case that turned the tide. Rebecca Howard, Tamika's aunt, worked in PR and tried to do the impossible. She tried to get national attention on a missing black woman. I would spend a good part of my day drafting media releases, calling up news desks. We hear about these missing women all the time. And, you know, it, the nation is captivated by these stories. Certainly, they're going to want to pick up on, you know, well, where is Tamika Houston? And I couldn't be more wrong. And so we thought we'd tell her story and expose a very toxic system overall, but also talk about the national mass media and why it typically ignores the stories of missing girls and women of color. That's perfect. Thank you. So actually, the other reason that we're here today to talk to you um, is that I have a little bit of news, which is that Finding Tamika is a winner of the 2023 DuPont Columbia Awards. What? What did you say? I said you've won. <laughs> the team and all the work, collaboration, just her, her story, who Tamika was. We've done so much social impact work and not just tell the story and walk away. It's more than helps. It, it's validation, credibility. You've got to be jiving me, man. My God, I wish I could tell my mama. Congratulations. How did you get, how did you get to this story? You're not a journalist. You're not in this world, traditionally. What happened? I'm often asked because of previous work I've done as an activist to attend events in support of women, all women, all different colors, shapes, and sizes. And I had a few years back, quite a few years back, had been asked to Alabama to support David Person, who is one of our producers. And I did. I left that event and he got in touch with me a few years later and said, Erica, I have a story. And I don't know if you do podcasts, but Rebecca Howard is a friend. And she told me about Rebecca's niece, Tamika. And he asked if we could meet Ben and I. And we met with Rebecca and David. And I said, I don't necessarily know how to do this, but I know how to tell stories in film and television. And I can maybe apply some of that to this narrative. But I actually, at the time, didn't even think anybody would do it. So many things are hard, especially if they're in a seem good for you or like medicine, like medicine or telling people about things that are hard. At the time, I didn't even think of it as true crime. I thought of it as just, 
you know, the story of Tamika. And, and so we took it around and, and surprisingly people were interested, but I had done a few interviews inside of the breakfast club with Charlemagne. And he had asked me to do a, a podcast on reparations and I did it. And he said, yo, queen, Tamika, I want to do that. And Kevin Hart and I have a new deal with Audible and we think we can do it there. And so we set that up and we got to work. And I have to say thank you because there's so many times that those types of collaborations don't work out for various reasons. But from the beginning, they gave us the support we needed. And then we were off to the races and that's how it happened. It was David Person who knew Rebecca, who asked us to collaborate with them. So this is a story that takes place in 2004, five, six, in the mid 2000s. So did anyone say to you, like, why are we doing this now? Like, what's what's new? Yes, there was some of that because obviously people want to know if this story is fresh enough and America's Most Wanted had done something on it. But it was my job to tell them that they had told the story of how Tamika died, but not how she lived. And that finding Tamika was not just a statement about her body and her death and the dismal, horrible thing that happened to her, but it was about whether we were looking at Black girls and women at all. And when they are alive, who are they? And then after something horrible happens to them in spaces where they don't die, they're not missing, do we see them? Because often they're right beside tragic things. And we're not asking if they've got the support or the therapy to recover. So that's what Finding Tamika was. Her life was complex and she wasn't just this damsel in distress. She was very complex and complicated that perhaps it was a noir story. And I'd seen interesting noir stories growing up where you've got the femme fatale and the detective and the all the characters, but she seemed to be all of them. And you have a personal connection to the area, right? Yes, I do. My mother lived in Greenville, South Carolina. After my father passed away here in New York, in East New York, she chose Greenville to live there for a while. My sister still lives there. So she met me when I came back. Everything looked different when I arrived. There had been so many upgrades and renovations and rehabilitation of the cities. And so it, it looked different. But once you peel back layers, you see there's a lot that stays the same. And this was a very, very personal story for you in a lot of other ways. Can you talk a little bit about the personal connection for you? Well, I'm a Black girl. I'm a Black girl. So I'm in the storytelling business and it's going on 39 years now. And I was discovered when I was 14 in Philly at Freedom Theater on Broad Street. I had a surprise career in that because I wasn't trained, what you call a natural. And it was on the job training for me in many years of mistakes or learning about what the business was. But very quickly, I realized that there were very few roles for me to play. I portrayed a foster child, a slave, a prostitute in that order. And I, th I saw how Hollywood saw Black girls as a set of pathologies. And I thought then that I should have to learn how to write, but I didn't have the discipline. So it took years to get good at it. But over time, I thought if I didn't, I would never be able to express myself. So that's what I worked to. So it's close to me because I wanted to tell a new story. I wanted to make her the face that launched a thousand ships, that people would look for her. And if I could tell her story better, that the new people coming and people who had been veterans in this business, the investment would be made into those stories. And that narrative would shift 
everything in the hearts of mind of how we see black and brown people, marginalized people, ageism, but also how we see black people, black girls. Why did you decide to start the series with the song, Our Eyes on the Sparrow? That was Tamika's favorite song. She sang it all the time. She loved music and she would, was one of her, um, you know, go-tos. And we had audio of her singing that song. But we also chose it because of the significance to the Black church and the comforting nature of it. Black people sing that a lot to remind themselves that if they feel alone, that they're not, that somebody, even in another dimension, sees them. I thought it stood for a really good marker of she might have died alone. There might be people out there who feel like no one will find them and haven't found them. And, we won't remember their names, maybe, but that a greater good was looking for them and that sparrow would, would stand in for who they are and what they represent. It was such a great way to start to paint the picture of her that created, you know, the mosaic of her that was much more than just this moment in her life that ended with her death. That was, again, the key to sort of say that she lives. She lives. I, might, I come from a, a background of religion, although I'm not very religious. And I, I guess I'm somewhat spiritual. And there's a lot of talk about the great by and by. And Black people were sold that a lot in slavery, that this life would be tough and hard and they wouldn't get justice. But if they could just live and die, that they'd have something in heaven. We needed to look for her. We needed to see her. And we were still able to see her, tell her story through the, the stories of the people who loved her and the people who did look for her. And also, I think that's strange that Tamika said that she would be famous. And she is. Also that she said that she would be dead before 25. I was just about to mention that, Lisa. I didn't want to go on down that road because it seemed like a downer. She had death angels. That's tragic. But there's a lot of, I talk to young people all the time and many of them don't believe they'll live very long. And that to me is, it's again, it's unacceptable because you live, if you live your life like that, you make these calculations of the immediacy and the immediate thing can sometimes be the thing that brings you down. You're not thinking about the long game. You're not making those decisions. And sometimes it takes sacrifice to see what's on the other end of that. But if you think you're going to go tomorrow, you're like, I'm going to get that bag. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. That miscalculation about the value of your life here, and maybe it's an honest calculation of what they're seeing, is the reason why so many create the type of circumstances that bring them closer to death. We had been conditioned all our lives to expect less. It had become a way of life. We were used to seeing white girls on TV getting national coverage. That's true. And a truth does not carry the baggage of a lie. 
It walks unburdened and is free to roam. Not like us. This is told so personally and so transparently. There's so much of you in this. How did you decide to do it that way? And what was that like behind the scenes? Can you tell us a little bit about the process? Sure. I'll just tell you, I didn't know how to tell the story. I'd never done a podcast. I'd listened to a few of them, but it just seemed like it's the Wild West. Like however you come with it, you have to focus on the audio and how could you tell a story. Once I went down to Spartanburg and people started to talk to me, her family, I was feeling something. Mm-hmm. I was feeling at first elated because I thought, wow, I think I found a new career. I like this. And isn't it interesting asking people about their stories and getting all these different characters popping in, you know, and their expectations and their fears. But once I visited the aunts, I actually had a huge feeling of dread. My sister was there and I couldn't even talk to her after that because I was not only afraid that I would tell it wrong, I kind of understood the stakes more. Once I got on the plane, I have pages and pages of notes that I said, I'm afraid, I'm scared. And I was crying and trying not for people not to see me so they didn't think I was upset. It was crazy that I was having all these thoughts and it seemed kind of selfish, but I knew then once I was writing that out, that I'd have to tell it different. And so that's where we started, that I would first be honest and tell people that I had experienced something that frightened me, that I didn't want a ghost to haunt me. In fact, I came off the plane and I was so unsettled that I went to a store and bought some crystals. I come from such a weird Southern Gothic background that I thought if I didn't do that, I'd open the door to something coming and visiting me. And I said, I mean, I just said out loud, I'm just much too sensitive. Please let me tell your story. I feel you. I can see you. Please, you don't have to visit me. (laughs) So I just authentically put myself in the story and then the writing came. That all didn't flow right out of you, did it? It did. James T. Green would put down audio in and then we would write to the audio specs. And so he did some work on the top end but after a while, I just got ahead, out ahead of him. I didn't have some help, but after a while, I just had to, to write. And he was fine with that. We actually had fun. Is that the first time you've done that? That type of writing? Yeah. Yes. That's remarkable. Thank you. So I just have like one or two more questions. Uh, you follow Tamika's life. You go way back in time. You talk about her Ethiopian roots, her grandmother, her best friend, all these different facets of her past life. The detail is extraordinary. What is it that you hope people will learn from that kind of descriptive process? What's the lesson that you hope they learn about reporting on Black women who go missing and missing Black girls? Um, We're not a set of pathologies. And we're responsible for asking questions that can reveal who that person is and what it is to be human. I depend on, as a person who reflects human life for my work as an actress, to ask myself all the time, what am I feeling? What, what is that to be human? 
not to be black, not to be poor, not to be, but to be human. And if we did that, it'd be hard to look at any one girl, whether they were dressed the way you thought they would be or any one person, what's coming out of their mouth, because often we're branded on the tongue and people don't pay attention to us because we're not completing our sentences, the grammar's bad. But that's a princess perhaps in there, trapped in a set of circumstances that were given to her probably before she entered the world. So you start to look at Tamika's life and then you start to look at, oh, she's Ethiopian? Wow, I didn't think about that. She's from, from Spartanburg and has a family there. So she's African-American in a very true sense, but they had a whole different type of spiritualism. And then there's her sugar mama who's a Baptist who raised her and spoiled her to death. And I just keep thinking about if we learn more about her life, we would want to look for her, but also we would value what she had while she was here. And I think we don't value each other enough. So I think that the value of learning about lives and people and asking more questions and what's delivered on a small space, Instagram, whatever, will help us create a bigger conversation about not only what it is to be human, but what our responsibility to each other is in going forward. That's great. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. Thank you, Erica Alexander, for that beautiful and important conversation. I have to say she was a delight, and some of the things really provided important food for thought. We should note that she has a new project out with veteran producer Whitney Dow. It's a documentary film called The Big Payback, which is about the passage of the first-ever tax-funded reparations bill for black Americans. And as you would imagine, there's quite a debate around it. You can read more about it in a blog post on our website, dupont.org, which is also where you'll find all the information about how to enter for the 2024 DuPont Awards. And who knows, maybe Erica and her team will be entering it this coming year for DuPont. We also recommend that you listen to the Finding Tamika podcast, which you can find on Audible. This episode of On Assignment was produced by our very own DuPont fellow, Lou Palmer, and was also audio engineered <laughs> by our very own DuPont fellow, Lou Palmer. Thank you, Lou Palmer. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Until next time. <laughs>